This is week number 37 in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week, uh, we concluded chapter 8. And you remember, in, in chapter 8 follows um, not only directly on the heels of chapter 7 in the order of the book, but also expands some of the understanding of what we got in chapter 7. Remember, chapter 7 is the first vision that Daniel had um, and that vision was a vision of four beasts. And the second of those beasts was a bear that was humped up on one side. And the third vision, beast in that vision was uh, a leopard who had four wings and four heads. And that's all that was said about them in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, Daniel gives us a, a bigger view, or at least Daniel's given a bigger view of that humped up bear and the leopard with four heads. And specifically, the leopard with four heads is expanded greatly because that leopard represented the Greek kingdom. The four heads represent the four kingdoms that came out of Alexander the Great's kingdom. And then in chapter 8, we're told that there's a, a king who arises from one of those kingdoms. And that king, we've discussed all of this, persecutes the Jews severely um, makes a change to the Jewish uh, sacrifices and their laws and their customs and the festivals and actually tries to abolish Judaism. And his reason for abolishing Judaism wasn't so much to be against the Jews, but rather um, he was trying to unite his kingdom under one religion, basically install uh, a national or uh, empire-wide religion that would worship Zeus and the moon god. And so he did, obviously, if you have the Jews living in your land, you must stop Judaism in order to install your religion. So he did, and he persecuted the Jews severely. And we talked about this. I believe that that, um, that small horn who goes exceedingly large in chapter 8 was represented in history by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And um, in that the things that Antiochus did fulfill all that, that Daniel wrote was going to happen in that, um, in that persecution of the Jews and in that time that was very terrible for them. And yet, we talked about this, that oftentimes Old Testament scriptures and specifically prophecies have a short-term fulfillment and then a longer-term fulfillment, often pointing to the return of Christ or the end of the age or the things that are going to happen in the, uh, that are coincident with those events of Christ returning. And I believe that there is a foreshadowing in chapter 8 of those events. Although um, I believe that the small horn of chapter 7 is distinctly different than the small horn of chapter 8. And we went through and discussed that and, um, and tried to at least make a persuading argument. And, and that is the, the belief that I hold is that Antiochus IV Epiphanes fulfills the short-term uh, vision that Daniel was given. It's, it's, several, it's 370 years later before Antiochus Epiphanes comes from the time when Daniel wrote uh, chapter 8. Now, this week one of you sent me uh, a very interesting paper by a man named Dr. Mark Hassler. And Dr. Hassler is the uh, adjunct professor of the Old Testament at the Master's Seminary. 
And so he wrote a paper that was to be published in the, I'll get the name right here. Um, I want to make sure I get this right. It, it was published in the, um, good grief, in the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament. So this is a prominent publication. And he wrote a paper entitled uh, The Little Horn of Daniel Chapter 8. And then he puts um, Antiochus Epiphanes, Rome, or the Antichrist. And so he goes through this interesting argument, one that actually in, in all the reading that I'd done, I'd not seen anybody take his tact and use his interpretation and his use of linguistics to prove his points or to build an argument to prove his points. And Dr. Hassler winds up at the end. Now, this is a good guy, right? This is a guy that we would uh, all welcome and embrace. And uh, he's, you know, he teaches at, a, uh, at the Master Seminary, a seminary we all respect. And so this is not a bad guy. But his conclusion is that the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 is indeed the Antichrist. It's the same as the little horn of chapter 7, and it's the same as the, um, the evil one that we'll read about in the end of chapter 9. And he equates all those things together. Now, I, this is good for me, right? It's always good for me to read someone whom I respect and embrace and yet who holds a different opinion than I do. And so I went through his arguments and I, I looked at them not in great detail but in, in some detail and um, what I found, what I thought in his logic were inconsistencies and somewhat of a circular argument. And so I, you know, I'm, I try to be open-minded and to, and to read and be persuaded to have a right understanding. But in the end, um, I was uninfluenced by his paper. This is a guy that we all would embrace. So my point is this. You need to read opposing views and you need to study them. And you need to be willing to be persuaded because you may be wrong in what you currently think. And so I took that tact as I read this paper, willing to be persuaded uh, as much as you can be, right? Because I had studied this in pretty good detail. So I reviewed all the study that we had done and compared it to what he had done. And I, I found his argument come lacking. Okay, I'm sure there are other people who would have a different opinion of that. But in my current standing, I stand where I stood as we taught this, that I believe that Antiochus Epiphanes fulfills the vision that Daniel had in the short term out of chapter 8. So this was an interesting week for me because I got that paper unexpectedly, did not expect to have to go back through that. So it was, it's good. It's good to be challenged and to um, look at the basis of your arguments compared to the basis of other people's arguments. And... If, if they have a persuasive argument, then you, you need to be willing to be changed in your thinking. So, uh, but at this point, I'm still where I was. So uh, maybe one day, and probably so, I'll get to talk to Dr. Hassler about that. And it will be a friendly conversation. It won't be adversarial. And we'll get to discuss different viewpoints. So um, he's a brother, going to be in heaven with him, so we'll know one day who was right. Right? <laughs> And it won't matter who was right, but it does matter today what you think. Okay, so um, with that, uh, we'll move into chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 does have relation 
to chapter 7 and 8. Matter of fact, it goes further with the person of the Antichrist than we've seen even foreshadowed in, in chapters. Uh, well, 7 is the, uh, I believe, the Antichrist. Chapter 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes. Now here in chapter 9, we're back to the Antichrist. And, uh, and some of these things, I'll just warn you up front, when we get down to the latter part of the chapter, the last few verses, um, there's significant controversy and disagreement among people that we love. And so we'll have to talk about that. I do have a view of that, and, I'll, and that's what I'll teach. But um, there are others who hold different views than what I'll teach. And I'm going to take you, um, again, fair warning, into some significant detail about the Roman army and who comprised the Roman army. And I'll use ancient documents and I'll use current documents. And we'll build an argument about who was it that invaded Rome and what did they do and who was in charge. Okay, because those things are all significant when you get to the end of this chapter. And they all influence your thinking about the world today and about the scripture that Daniel writes going forward. So it's very important arguments to be made at the end of this chapter. But we'll start at the beginning like we usually do, right? So we'll read the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 9 to get started in, into this chapter. When I taught Revelation, uh, let me see, we, we've, in 93 we moved. So I started teaching Revelation in 91. And I finished in 95. Um, so during that time, this is the passage that I came as I was teaching Revelation and studied and taught for six weeks uh, in the middle of a study of Revelation because this plays directly to the book of Revelation. Now we're not going to do that so much. We're going to take Daniel for what it says. But when we get to Revelation in the year 2020 or whenever, uh, we'll come back to this. Okay, if the Lord wills and if we're still here, and uh, then we'll come back to this. So this is a very significant chapter. So beginning in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, there the scripture reads, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, okay, of Median descent, who was made king over the king, kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, 
to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. So finally, a voice of reason, right? And all the craziness that's been going on uh, by the people in this book of Daniel. Now, we just, we just take this as it comes. In the first year of, da- of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Okay, um, this is a verse that those who believe that Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C. camp on. This is one of their, their strong, in their opinion, arguments is all about this verse because it's very clear to them that the writer of Daniel was very confused about history and who was king when and who followed who and, and um, you know, what was the order of the kings. This guy is very confused as he writes this book. And so they say... The argument goes that because of the confusion, it couldn't have been someone who was contemporary to the events that were happening. Therefore, it was probably written in the 2nd century B.C. by someone who did not have a clear understanding of the historical account. That's the way the argument goes. Now, there are a lot of suppositions in there that they make, and so I want to look at a few of these. Now, we've seen this Darius before, right? Look back over at the end of chapter 5. And we talked about this some when we were over there. At the end of chapter 5 is when Darius first comes on the scene. So um, right at the very end, uh, verse 30, That night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps, over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. Okay, so pretty straightforward what it says there, right? That uh, Belshazzar was killed, and then Darius was appointed as king over Babylon. Okay? So, just try and put all this together. um, Darius's father's name in chapter 9 is what? Hasuerus, right? Isn't that how that's said? I think so. Okay? You can't ever be sure about these things. All right. Ahasuerus appears in other places in Scripture. Okay? Namely, and let's go look at this. You can go over um, to um, the book before Job in your Bible. That's the easiest way to find it, called Esther. Okay, because this is how these are parts of the argument that are made against the book of Daniel. And so you go to Esther chapter 1, verse 1, and you see, as you turn, I love it when people go look for yourself. Esther chapter 1, now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. We've seen that before, right? In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes. 
and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. Now, it's very clear there, right, that Ahasuerus is the king over the Medes and the Persians because he's inviting people from all of those provinces to come to his party. And this was a great banquet. This was the banquet um, at which his wife Vashti, the A-S-H-T-I, refused to go to the banquet. And because of that, he had her put out. And then for the next four years, they prepared all the virgins of the kingdom. Okay, They went through a year of perfuming and other various attire. And out of all of that came forth um, the, the namesake, Esther, of this book, who then became Ahasuerus' wife. Okay? Now, the only issue here is that what, in what year, or approximately, did Belshazzar lose the kingdom of Babylon and the Persians came in and took it? You remember what year that was? Well, think about this. It was 605, right, or so, when Daniel went into captivity. And Daniel went into captivity and was there for 70 years before he writes what he's writing now. So it's the year... You've got to count down, right? You start at 605 and count down. So it's about 539 is when most people name it. 538, 539, when they actually came in and captured them. Now, this king, because this is a king of Persia, right? So this is well documented in history when this, when this guy was king. And the problem is, is that Ahasuerus was a Persian king in the year 486 to 465. But Daniel's writing way earlier than that, right? So how can it be that we have Ahasuerus as the king of Persia in the book of Esther... And yet, he's mentioned also over in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. Well, obviously, the writer of Daniel was confused, right? That's the way the argument goes. But not so much. What could be another explanation of that? There's more than one Asuerus, right? That would be a legitimate argument. A matter of fact, if you go into scripture, if you look at history, there are several guys who are named that. And if you take this guy that we're looking at in Esther and you interpret it to the Greek, this would be Xerxes, the father of Artaxerxes. All of these guys will be very significant as we get to the end of the chapter and we look at the prophecy that was given because you've got a proclamation by Cyrus, by Xerxes, and by Artaxerxes. Okay, now Cyrus was king. And then uh, Symbiasis was king after him. Could be his son, could not be his son. Not real sure if it was his son or not. And then you have Xerxes, Ahasuerus here. And then you have his son, Artaxerxes. That's the way that the Persian line goes. So this, my point is this. Just because you see the same name in scripture doesn't mean it's the same guy. And this is not the same guy. This is probably the grandson of Cyrus that we're talking about here. Okay, so it's 
70 years later after Daniel's writing what he's writing. So, and believe me, the, those who oppose the book will take arguments like that and run with them. And so you've got, you've got to do some digging. You've got to do some research and find out what the truth is because their arguments, if you just take them for what they say, they'll persuade you to be with bad understanding because that's the way the argument goes, that this proves that the writer of Daniel was confused. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't prove that at all. Well, yeah, it's inspired, right? The actual pen was that of Daniel or a scribe who helped Daniel. But that's the way the argument goes. And, you know, it doesn't hold water. But you have to do some research to figure that out. All right, now going back over to Daniel chapter, um, we'll go that 9-1 where we have Darius mentioned. But go back to 6 again. And, we, we, and you notice that as you wear us, in Esther 1.1 had 127 provinces. Here we've got 120. So the argument continues that it's obvious that Darius set up uh, satraps over the whole kingdom of Persia. That's their argument. Now it doesn't say that. Look at 6.1 carefully. It does not say that he set them up over the whole kingdom of Persia. It says over the whole kingdom. Right? All right, then look on down in um, verse 28 of this chapter of chapter 6 is also very important because this tells us uh, Daniel's relationship to these guys. So Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now you remember it was Darius who had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. It was Darius who was tricked and had to throw Daniel into the lion's den and then feared for Daniel's life and went to him early the next morning and Daniel responded to him. And so the friendship was made and those who had him thrown in there were then thrown in there and eaten by the lions. Okay, so this, that's the, the first uh, connection that we see that Darius had to Daniel. So Daniel was the guy standing in the purple robe whenever... Um, the Chaldeans were put down by the Persians. So, another piece of this argument, okay, it just goes on and on and on that they pull at, is that in verse 28, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The argument goes like this. That verse is very clear that Cyrus reigned after Darius reigned, that they were successive kings. Now, do you think it's that clear? No, and, and so, you know, uh, I've told you about this book before. There's this book, uh, Studies in the Book of Daniel, written by uh, Robert Dick Wilson. Great book. He, he will take the arguments that we're talking about this morning, and he will piece by piece by piece dismantle them in a very logical, very systematic way. He's got four chapters in here on Darius the Mede. And who is he and who is he not? And he uses dates, and this guy understood all the languages, so he quotes the languages, and it gets over my head very quickly. But there's some things you can follow. This is a worthwhile read um, if you're interested in both history and in the interpretation of Scripture. 
because this guy is a true believer and a brilliant mind. Um, he has two volumes. This is the second volume, I believe it is. Um, there was going to be a third, but he died before it was compiled. So there are a bunch of writings that were going to go into the third, but there's not a third volume. So, But this is a good book. Um, one that if you're interested in these kind of things and you want to know uh, what the arguments are on both sides, this, this book will explain it to you. Uh, so I brought it so you could see it if you wanted to today. Um, so he, he dismantles this, and he quotes at least 50 times in history where um, double dating is used. And he's quoting from the time before Cyrus, the time of Cyrus, and the time after Cyrus, that all through history, people have used, historians have used double dating. And that's what's going on here in this verse. They're using two kings who reigned at the same time to narrow down the time frame. He even quotes some that use three uh, triple dating and some that use quadruple dating so they could get very narrow in, in the time frame that they were talking about. That's what's going on in verse 28. And this is his argument um, is that you, you're not having um, Darius reigning and then Cyrus reigning but you're having Darius and Cyrus reigning at the same time contemporarily. And Cyrus, we know from history, and it's chronicled well in the, in the Babylonian and the Persian documents, that he was king of Persia, the whole kingdom, the, the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus was over the whole thing. Okay, there is not a king at that time named Darius, who was a Persian king. Okay, so there's another argument that they throw at it, but Again, Robert Dick Wilson does a pretty good job of building an argument that Darius could very well be a translation of a guy named Gobrius. Gobrius was one of the generals in charge who uh, attacked Belshazzar, killed him, and took his kingdom. Okay, And Gobrius had been king of a, land, of a city called Gutium. Gutium is on the border of the Median uh, kingdom, very close to the Median capital. And so from a Persian perspective, you would see Gobarius as a Mede because he was right on the border. He wasn't part of your country. And so, and he had been a king. He was a general when they attacked and took Babylon. And he was the guy, and, and this is really undisputed, all, almost all scholars agree, that he was put over as governor of Babylon for at least the time from when they first took it until the king was installed. So then the question is, well, was the king then Gobrius? And, and a pretty good argument, again, is made that, um, you know, it's very common in history for kings, once they're crowned, to take a different name than the name they had before they were crowned. Very common in history for that to happen. Um, or the other argument is that this could possibly be a title, like you would call Caesar, or you would call the emperor emperor, or you call our president president. It could be something like that. The, the better argument is that it was Gobrius, 
and that he changed his name to be Darius. There are several Dariuses that come after this. You know, there's like seven in history that you have to try and weed through. So, but it's a very common name that other guys took once they were crowned as king. So it's not unusual. And for Cyrus to be the king of Persia, that means that Darius would have been just the king over Babylon and that the satraps that he appointed would have been over the provinces of Babylon, not over the provinces of the whole um, Persian kingdom. And so the, the arguments they put forth can easily be defeated. I mean, they, they just don't hold up because they're not conclusive, I guess is a better way to say it. They're, they're speculations that they make. That you can make speculations all day long. That doesn't mean they're true. And so these are the arguments that the opponents of the book of Daniel put forth. And this is why they believe it was written in the second century B.C. Go ahead, David. And that I can't help you with. Um, you know, there are several languages. You know, there's, there's. I, I don't know the languages. I guess would be the best way to say it. I mean, they. You know, there's more languages than just Greek and Persian and um, Chaldean. There's more than that that are on, in play here. Well, you have to worry about the Assyrian translation. I mean, there's several languages at play here, and I don't know them, so I won't try and make that argument. But the man who I have read does know all those languages. Matter of fact, what Robert Dick Wilson would often do when it was time for him to try and defeat an argument, he would go and learn all those languages. He had a mind that could do that. And so he did. And the guys he's arguing against don't know the languages. And so his arguments are much more substantial than theirs. And he'll give you phrases and that kind of stuff that I can't understand. Um, but, um, you know, he's a trustworthy author. That doesn't mean you believe everything he says and that he's right on every point. But the argument is pretty strong. And the arguments the other way are not. Good. I was going to say, whether it's the false arguments, what we're calling false arguments, there's assumptions made. In huge, the huge. Right. And that there's not serious historical mistakes either. Yeah, and is that an assumption or can you substantiate that with the history? Well, as we learn more, we've substantiated Right, right. And, and yeah, this is one thing I love about Wilson is that he often says it's true that we don't have any documents. They haven't been found yet. And we know that he died in the early 1900s. So we know that we found a whole lot since he died, and we don't have the, the advantage of him being able to study that and build his arguments even more, but there, there has been a huge amount of uh, discovery in the, in the 20th century. But, but we assume the text is trustworthy. We do assume it because it's in the canon of history, or it's in the canon of scripture, but if you look at the historical councils who said it should be in the, in the uh, canon of scripture, then there's more than just an assumption. Because there are men who lived at that time who analyzed it and compared it to other things that aren't in the scriptures and placed it into the canon of scripture. 
I mean, there's no, and you can go study all the councils who determine what should be in Scripture and what shouldn't be, and things were put in, some were taken out, and the, you know, through the years. But uh, your conclusion will be that what we have today is trustworthy, and that the councils, God superintended the decisions of the councils to keep his canon together. I mean, if you do any serious study, that will be your conclusion. So, all of this, I just want you to know that this is the verse that the critics build their argument on. This is one of the, the cruxes of their argument. And it, to me, is, is like vapor. It doesn't hold any weight. And, uh, but you have to study some to get to that point. You can't just make that assumption. And this is the thing about Wilson that I love. He will say, okay, if this is their conclusion, then here are their assumptions. One, two, three, four, five. Now let's look at the assumptions and show you why they're not true. And then he'll go through them. One, two, three, four, five. And use good research, good logic to show that they're not, the assumptions are false. All, not just one of them. All of them are false. So, it, like I said, it's a good read. If you don't have anything else to do and you just like that kind of stuff. And you like having to turn a page every now and then because you didn't understand what was on it. That's okay. Okay? Because you will understand a good bit of it. Yes? Um, you said earlier the numbers were 70, 120 versus 127. Mm-hmm. Um, as I understood the hierarchy of how that land was conquered, mm-hmm. They did. When they were doing the conquering lands, those weren't official promises until there was an authority established, taxes were gathered, and censuses were taken. Sure, sure. But in the meanwhile, the military rulers or leaders or generals would send out, um, I guess you'd call it an overall ruler or leader of a given. Someone had to be in charge, right? Correct. And they called them the same thing, satraps. Sure. Right. I'm just saying all this to maybe explain why there might be a different count. Yeah, and well, and also the one count is for the for Babylon, and the other counts for Persia. Babylon being one of the provinces of Persia. So. Sure. Oh, much. Yeah, much larger than Babylon. So, you know some of the arguments and some of the, the, the arguments against them. That, that's my point for going through that. Because this, if you read the literature, and you need to read broadly, you will come across guys who will use this verse to prove their point. And you need to do some digging to understand that it really doesn't hold a whole lot of weight. All right, so back to chapter 9. Now that we've run the course there, we can, we can move forward. So, Darius, in his first year of Median descent as king over Babylon, is who Daniel's referring to. And who would have known better than Daniel, who was in the court of King Darius? You know, who would have known better? Nobody. So, um, 
This is in the first year, and we talked about this, right? First year means what? Second year, because the first year is coronation year or year of ascension or whatever. So this is the second year. So it's been more than a year since Babylon fell. Now, the, the vision in chapter 7 was when, chronologically? First year of Belshazzar as king. Somewhere between 10 and 15 years before Babylon fell. Vision of chapter 8 is when? Third year of Belshazzar. Two years after the first one. All right, now here we are, and it's the second year, by the way, we would count, of King Darius, right? So how long has it been since the second vision in chapter 8 to chapter 9. How many year gap do we have here? Take a guess. No, it's more like 12, right? Or, or 10. Something in that range. Because Belshazzar became king 10 to 15 years before the Babylonian kingdom fell. Then two years later, so 8 to 13 years before and now we got two years into the reign of Darius. So it's 10 to 15 years since chapter 8. So it doesn't read that way, right? Just looks like these things are consecutive. It's been a long time. Daniel's now um, in his late 70s or early 80s. Probably 80s. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a while since he sealed up the vision of chapter 8. So it's not like these things happen just year after year after year, and, and so Daniel wrote them down. Not at all. There's a 10-year gap at least here between chapters 8 and 9. Okay, so Daniel's been being faithful probably in the city of Susa for 10 years. And then the kingdom fell, and now he's in the new kingdom, and he's back in Babylon, and he's with the king, and he's back into his position that he had with Nebuchadnezzar back at the beginning of the book. Okay, so things are going well for Daniel. As we read over in 628, Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and Cyrus. It was good years for him. Things went well for him. So because of that, Daniel has the privilege, I guess you would say, of being able to read um, important documents. Because you can see in, in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So there's a prophecy somewhere in Jeremiah, right? If you've got a, a reference Bible, you know where it is, that says that the desolation of Jerusalem would only last for 70 years. All right, so, but at this current sta- uh, point in time, what does Jerusalem look like? What, what had happened to the temple? Destroyed. Destroyed is a good word. Torn down is maybe not a good word. Okay. It was raided and robbed and burned. You remember all that? The, the whole city of Jerusalem was burned. So, and all the people were taken, most of the people were taken captive to not only Babylon, but other lands. Um, 
that Nebuchadnezzar raided Jerusalem three separate times and slaughtered and took people back to Babylon every time that he did that. And so it's, it's just a mess. And, there, you know, there are still inhabitants there, but only the people who um, were not good enough to be taken to Babylon because they were the low people of society. And so that's all that's left there. So it is in desolation. And so um, we'll, we'll go and confirm what Daniel read. Look over in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah is to the left of Daniel. Jeremiah 25. And read the first couple of verses so you get the the setting um, that Jeremiah is talking about. You can see that uh, Jeremiah 25.1, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people in, of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So in a year or so, um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and raid them. Okay, or maybe he already has. Because you remember when Nebuchadnezzar raided Jerusalem, he was not actually king yet. His dad, Nabopolassar, was just about to die. And so he raided Jerusalem and then was installed as king. But this is the first year, so that's two years later, right? All right, and, and then in verse 2, where, uh, where Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, then drop down to verse 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Pretty specific. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So in 70 years, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are going to be destroyed. And that's the taking over by Persia. And Daniel has seen all this lived out in living color. Now, Daniel and Jeremiah are contemporaries, okay? But Jeremiah, about 25 years older than Daniel, so his writings stop about halfway through the 70-year captivity, whereas Daniel's start before and end after the 70-year captivity. So they, they are alive at the same time. Jeremiah... Probably when Daniel was a little boy, he heard Jeremiah preaching in Jerusalem that this is going to happen. Now, whether he remembered or not, don't know, but he was reading the book. That's how he knows that it's 70 years. Now, this, this 70 years is not just in the prophecy of Jeremiah, but it's based on the prophecy of Jeremiah. Look back in Second Chronicles at the very end. I think it's chapter 26. Second Chronicles, you know, Chronicles, I have a greater appreciation for Chronicles than I used to. Because Second Chronicles right at the very end. 36, not 26. Yeah, 36. And then look down in verse 20. And this, you know, Chronicles recounts all of the history of the, of the Jews. Basically what it does. And it goes way back, and it goes up until this point right here. 
So in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20, those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar. If you read a little earlier, it'll say that. Nebuchadnezzar, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Matches perfectly, right? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolations, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were completed. So this is Chronicles recounting what Jeremiah wrote and and giving you a a broader perspective. Now, read the next couple of verses because these are not so important for our discussion today, but they will be very important for our discussion when we get down to verse 25. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you all of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So this is Cyrus, the same Cyrus that we're talking about who was king of Persia when Darius was king of Babylon. This is the same Cyrus making a proclamation that, hey, anybody of the Jews who is willing and able, go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and I support you in doing that. So this is the first decree that we know of that was made for the people to return to Jerusalem. There will be more. And we'll have to talk about them because they become very important in the 70 weeks of Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel. But this is the first one. Second Chronicles 36, the last five verses. Okay, now turn the page, one page, over to Ezra. And look at Ezra, the first few verses of Ezra. Now, when is Ezra historically in relationship to Daniel? Got an idea? Right after is, uh, I mean, it's a long time ago, right? It's 75 years after Daniel finishes writing. You then have Ezra come on the scene and write. Okay? So it's the next century, not right after all right, but look at what he writes. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and then we have it again, right? Same thing. So, 70 years later, this declaration by Cyrus is still very, very important. It's still in play. Persia's king. Persia's still ruling at this time. Persia ruled for more than 70 years. And so um, this is um, still very, very important to the historical rebuilding of the temple. Okay? So you can see that this, this declaration by Cyrus is prominent in, in biblical history. It's very, very important. Because without Cyrus doing this, the Jews would have never returned to Jerusalem. 
They would have never had the second temple built by Zerubbabel. Wouldn't have happened. And the Jews would not have been practicing the sacrifices and all the ceremonies when Christ came. So this was necessary for in the redemptive plan of God for Cyrus to send the Jews back. But 70 years later, that's still what they're standing on. Very prominent in biblical history. Without it, we wouldn't be sitting here. Some go back, but not many, right? You've got um, Zerubbabel goes back and is, and is king, for lack of a better word, of Judah for 75 years. Zerubbabel does rebuild the temple, but it's at the end of that reign. And then you've got Nehemiah who goes, remember the story, rebuilds the gates. And you've got Ezra who's right here at about the same time as Nehemiah going back also. So they don't dedicate the temple. Let me get this right. It's 521 or something like that. That's when they started building it. 516 is when they finally start um, 416. When they finally, 516, thank you. When they finally start sacrificing again. So it's a long time. It takes a long time to rebuild Jerusalem and for the people to begin to return. And many of them never returned, but a significant number did. That's, Ezra, when that yes, okay. yes. It's 75 years or so between Daniel and Ezra, okay, when they write. So it's, these things aren't happening just like this, are they? I mean, the decree is made, and 70 years later, they're still working on, the, on rebuilding Jerusalem. So it takes a while. Okay, so go back to Daniel chapter 9. And now we've got the 70 years well documented in Scripture. This, and see, not just anybody would have been able to read the writings of Jeremiah. Daniel is literally reading the writings of Jeremiah when he realizes this. When it, when it dawns on him, hey, it's been 70 years. And he's lived through it all. And so notice what he does. I mean, he's he, probably pretty excited, right? It's like you when you understand the biblical truth magnified by a hundred right (laughs) because he's living through this so in verse three he immediately says so i gave my attention to the lord god to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes now we read this kind of stuff all the time in 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 scripture right Uh, fasting and sackcloth and ashes why fasting sackcloth and ashes why is it? It's not many places in Scripture. You can go look up sackcloth and ashes, and you only find it in half a dozen or so. So it's not like it's everywhere in Scripture. Okay. Okay, to a point, yes. What else? If you were going to go and put on sackcloth and sit in ashes, okay, that's what it literally means, that you're sitting in an ash heap with sackcloth instead of your regular clothes. Why? Okay, that's part of it. What else? You're in sackcloth and ashes in prayer before the Lord. What's that? Yeah, yeah, it's repentance. Let me show you that in Scripture. Look over at 
these are not related to what we're talking about, but they're a good pi- word picture for you. Isaiah chapter 58. Making you try and go find all this stuff today, right? Where is that? Isaiah 58 verse 5 gives us a pretty good description of what this ashes and sackcloth is all about. Maybe not. 58, right? Sorry, I was in 57. 5. Yeah. Well, 58.5 is where I'm at. (laughs) 58.5. Isaiah 58.5. It isn't like a fast which I choose a day for a man to humble himself and for the spreading of out sackcloth and ashes as a bed. Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? So ashes and sackcloth represent what? Humility. Humility before the Lord. And as you say, you acknowledge your shame. It's all about well, let me show you how it's about repentance. The Lord referenced this over in uh, a couple of times, but in Luke chapter 10. Look in Luke chapter 10. This will be familiar to you. Verse 13. Luke ten thirteen, Jesus speaking says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So as Daniel dons his sackcloth, sits in ashes and fasts, what's he doing? It's all about humbling himself before the Lord and repenting of the sin that's been committed. Because look at the first part of of verse 4 in Daniel chapter 9. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to those. And he goes on, but then look at verse 5. We have sinned. There's the humility. Notice he says, we. Now, Daniel was a young teenager when Jerusalem was punished for the sins of their fathers. So was Daniel guilty for that? He recognizes this is about the Jewish nation, and he identifies with them. And so he says, we have sinned. Now, we'll come back and talk about this some next week because this is, if you've ever heard proper way to pray to God and true repentance, this is it. This is it. This is a a man who acknowledges and confesses, shows his shame, identifies with his people, says this is my sin and my people's sin. I mean, this is confession before the Lord. And that's what the sackcloth and ashes and the fasting is all about. This is all, and why would you fast before you prayed to God? Why? You ever done that? That means not just one meal, right? It clears your mind. It does. It takes away distractions and focuses 
That's what it does. It focuses you on why you're doing this. It, 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 it draws your attention to it. So that's what the fasting is all about. And then the sackcloth and ashes is all about humility and repentance. And that's where Daniel's at. This is the most faithful man in the land for 70 years. And yet he's the one confessing the sin. Thanks for your time.